Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal. In this episode, I speak with Lacey Beatty. Lacey was the youngest person ever elected to office in Beaverton, Oregon, when she won a seat on the city council in 2014. And in 2019, she became the first woman ever elected mayor. I talked with Lacey, a combat veteran, about her time in the military and how it led to a life of service as well as about how elected officials everywhere can support veterans in their communities. We also talked about becoming mayor right after COVID hit and her role in leading her city's recovery, as well as how she's addressing climate change in the face of more extreme weather events in the Northwest. We also talked about how becoming a former lacrosse coach helped prepare her for being mayor. Enjoy. Lacey Beatty, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so fun to see you. I have so much that I want to talk to you about. So as I mentioned in my intro, you have a lot of historic firsts. You are the youngest elected official in the history of your city of Beaverton. You are also the first woman mayor. But even with that said, you had a whole career in public service before you ran for office, which was in the military. I think you were in high school when 9-11 happened and you enlisted in the army and you served overseas in Germany and in Iraq as a combat medic. And I guess I just wanted to start with the question of you know, your decision to make that your first act of public service and what led to that? You know, I was raised by a single mom and money and finances were tight. And so looking at college, I played lacrosse and was offered an NCAA lacrosse scholarship that didn't pay for everything. And I knew student loan debt is not what I wanted because at 18, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and going into debt to not know what I wanted to do seemed like not the best option. So I kind of looked around and I joined right before 9-11. And so I really thought I was going to Germany to drink beer and hang out and backpack and, you know, enjoy the army days of the 80s where there wasn't a lot of conflict. And so shortly after I joined, 9-11 happened. I was in basic training on the one year anniversary of 9-11. And then the next following year, I was in Iraq. And so it happened really quickly and kind of moved from there. So I think the army was a fantastic start to service. And was really hard for me to talk about when I first started running for office because I just wanted to be done with that phase. And given kind of the global context of military service in the early 2000s, it was hard to talk about. And I've had to talk about it a lot more. But now I've found my voice in an important field of veterans as a woman veteran to be able to talk about my service differently. Yeah. You know, as a mayor, you are leading a city that has a lot of veterans, has a lot of National Guard members. Your husband's in the National Guard. Tell me about kind of how being a veteran plays into how you think and how it kind of shaped your leadership as a mayor. Totally. So my husband is a full-time National Guard officer that we have similar roles. As a full-time mayor, I take care of our part-time council. As a full-time 
army officer. He takes care of part-time National Guardsmen in the state. Oregon is one of the most deployed guard states in the country because of our infantry and armored units that are there. And so, and we've made this big shift during COVID on how we use National Guard. They opened up vaccine clinics. They were driving school buses. They were doing like hub and spoke delivery of PPE early in our state. And so I think we've used them as we don't have an answer to a problem. So the National Guard's going to pick it up and do it. And that's leading to a lot of retention issues of people wanting to stay because they have full-time careers. But I think it all points towards we have a little bit of a broken system and COVID has really brought to the surface how challenging it is for us to get things accomplished in government. And so I kind of take my leadership as we have to make things, miracles happen on a daily with no resources. That's how it is in the army. Like you do things, you have to accomplish things, you don't have resources. That's what it's like being a mayor. Bring everyone together, limited resources, get the mission accomplished and move on to the next crisis. Yeah. I want to ask you about kind of the recovery and spend some time on that. But before I leave kind of the military idea, I'm just curious, there are a lot of mayors and other elected officials who didn't serve themselves. Do you have any advice for those folks who were not service folks and how they can best support the veterans in their community? Yeah, like find someone that served to like be on your cabinet and be the person you can call and ask the questions of that maybe you might be embarrassed to ask in a public space, but rely on their expertise. The same we do with DEI or any other initiative. You bring in people that know that work. Being a mayor is a generalist. I can't know everything about everything that we do. And so really looking towards what's your cabinet look like? How do you bring people in? Because, you know, when I, you know, we have a governor's race happening in Oregon and I read plans that are like, for COVID response, we're going to bring the National Guard in and do this, this, and this. And I was like, did you talk to a National Guard person before you made this plan? And how do you think that's going to be received? And so that's what I think. Like, make sure you have someone on your team that's overlooking the things that you're doing and asking, is this helpful? Is this going to move us forward? Are we doing these things? Which is not, when you're operating in light speed, kind of harder to do. But I think if we don't, with less and less people serving, it's really hard. And I think we're going to have this a really hard time with an all-volunteer military going forward if we can't correct some of these things that are happening now. Yeah, I think that that's great advice. Thank you for that. When you came back, you've been pretty open about the fact that you you know, had a little bit of a hard re-entry coming home. What was the path that kind of eventually led you to think you wanted to run for office? It was all of that. And so I think loneliness was the emotion I experienced the most in reintegration. And that's a weird thing to think about. Like you leave the military and you're lonely because (laughs) you're around people all the time and you have this mission and the military is great at getting people to believe in the greater good and bringing together. Then all of a sudden you find yourself not near having that mission. So I was talking with a mentor and she said, you know, just because you're done serving in the army doesn't mean you need to be done serving. So find a new path. And so that's kind of how I got on my first boarding commission was just trying to figure out this place to like meet people. Like it's hard as an adult to make friends if you're not in a college environment where you're shoved together or maybe the army you're shoved together. Like you move to a new city. How do you meet friends and get kind of acquainted to the community? So that's what kind of transitioned me. And I sat on the vision advisory committee, which was making a 20-year plan for our community. And the average age of Beaverton is 34, the average age person, where Portland, our neighboring city, is 44. So we're actually a very young, very diverse community. And everyone on the council was like 50 plus, saying things like, millennials want to live in high-rise buildings, so let's do more of that. And I was like, have you talked to a millennial? Like that's, I mean, they can't afford it, but we have bikes and kayaks, and this is the Northwest, you got to have space. So I saw that a younger voice was needed on the council, and so that's why I ran. My first race, I ran against an incumbent city councilor and beat him by about 14 points. And so I knew that voice was missing when the community elected me. 
Yeah, I love that you did that. And I do love that there really seems to be, we have a lot of New Deal leaders who are like you, younger, and, you know, sometimes they're the only millennial in their, even in their legislative body. I've talked to people who have said, you know, I'm the only renter in the legislative body. I mean, I do think that this is so important that you have kind of a, you know, a representative voice of all the different generations because it just brings a different perspective. So I'm so glad that you ran. And then obviously you uh, fast forward, decided to run for mayor and you announced for mayor before the pandemic hit, if I read correctly, but became mayor right before the pandemic. So obviously you've been you know, governing in this really unprecedented time and having to be a be a new mayor while that's happening. I also know you mentioned the visioning committee. I noted that earlier this month, you and the council released a strategic plan and some priorities. First of all, I love that. I'm not sure enough people do that. But so tell me kind of about how that came about and maybe a couple, you know, just how you think about a vision for Beaverton moving forward. Well, I think if we don't plan, we get bogged down in details of what we're doing right now. And I think we also shifted our form of government when I was elected from strong mayor to city manager form of government, but created my position full time to do the government affairs, to do mayor things, build relationships, get policy done. And we know in this, like trying to seven people direct the city manager for work versus the mayor doing it, we had to have a good plan. And before, in our old form of government, we would make plans individual, like me as an elected official, I want to have this one project done, I'm going to get it on the board, that's my thing for the year. We had to really shift towards, we need to give overarching goals for the city manager to make a work plan, to come back to us and say, here's what you want to accomplish, here's the road to get there, and we don't have enough money to do it. So you're going to have to figure out some compromise, and it's new decision making for us. And I have a council that's relatively new. We have a brand new city manager. Three of our elected officials are new. So much change management and just getting people along in the process that I knew that we needed to get a plan, a two to three year high level plan out there. So that way, when things arise, we can say, does this fit into the plan? Otherwise, you're just constantly doglegging a direction and are only responding to things that are right in front of you. And communities need infrastructure planning. We need the unsexy part of local government is that planning getting things done. You know, we just opened an art center that is a decade in the making, but people just see us cut the ribbon today and go, oh, where did this come from? We had to build a parking garage. We had to figure out funding. All those things take so much time. If we don't do the planning, then nothing gets done. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned earlier kind of the pandemic and all the inequities, frankly, that were laid bare. We knew that existed before the pandemic, but so much of it was, you know, just heightened and spotlighted, whether it was access to broadband or childcare or housing and and how some of the disparity in that access, depending on the community you lived in, particularly hard on communities of color, obviously. And so I'm curious as in you thinking about that plan, where are some of the areas that you'd like to invest? I will give you a shout out for the shout out you got from the White House this week. You're at the National League of Cities meeting in DC this week, and they mentioned the work that you're doing to help small businesses. So I know that's one of them in your community. But to how do you think about where you want to invest money to make sure that your community can recover equitably from the pandemic? So one of the things that, and we did spend 20%, you know, being a city of around 100,000, we didn't get the same ARPA level funding that bigger cities did. So we had to be really creative on how we spend that 13 million that we got. And I pulled in about additional 20 million in different sources to do other projects. But 20% of our tranche one money went to small businesses. And so that's like a really important factor for recovery. But for me, I wanted to look at How can this money be a force multiplier and change some of the things that we're doing forever? So Beaverton is a city, if you're unfamiliar with the Northwest, we share a border with Portland. So we're Portland's most adjacent neighbor. 
they have a lot of community-based organizing to aid all kinds of historically marginalized community members from, you know, the BIPOC community to veterans to women. They have all these nonprofits. Well, Beaver 10 basically had none. And so one of the things that I really wanted to do that I pushed our federal delegation and got an earmark and paired with ARPA money was to create a nonprofit incubator with the idea that we would do CBO capacity building. So that way, like when all the money started flowing into cities and governments, we're not equipped to do social justice work. We're not equipped to really do any of those. And that's not really the form of government. So many of us turn to nonprofits to say, can we partner with you to do this? Well, we didn't really, we didn't have that. So it was really challenging for us to get that money out very fast and to reach communities that we didn't have the best relationship with. So we have about between $1.5 and $2 million for this project. We run a technology incubator, so we already have a little bit of experience in incubating ideas. So that's one that I'm super excited about. While it's going to take a while for us to kind of get there, the idea that we can fix structural problems with one-time use money and infuse it in our community to create a lasting impact is really exciting. And we would have never been able to do that without ARPA funding. Yeah, I love that. And what I love about that so much is that, you know, I think that sometimes people think about government as the solver of problems, right? As opposed to thinking about government as the identifier of problems, the resource gatherer, the leader to kind of put everybody rowing in the same direction, you know, but to leverage the money and the clout the government has to make sure that there's public-private partnerships with business, with nonprofits, with others to really solve those problems. And I think that that's so smart of you. What about, I know that you've also, you mentioned Portland, and I've heard you talk in the past about kind of a regional approach to things that try not to recreate the wheel necessarily in Beaverton, if other people are doing things well around you, leveraging what they're doing to bring those resources to Beaverton. Are there examples of that in the way you're thinking in this plan? Yeah, government is such that we often want to be the idea generator and the person that solves the problems. And my style is I view my role as the mayor as the convener of conversations. Here's the problem. Can we bring people together? So a couple examples that I've been able to do this year, right when I took office, it's when COVID vaccines are starting to roll out. And there was so much inequity over where do you get them? Who gets them? Who has access? Everyone is just rushing to get this. Well, we live on the west side of Portland, so we can, the west side, there was no mass vaccine clinic. Everyone had to travel to Salem, which is about an hour away, or into Portland. And when you talk about communities of color, low-income communities, taking a day off of work to go stand in line and get a vaccine or find one is really challenging. And I kept having levels of government telling me, cities, this isn't your job to do this. And I said, okay, well, let's bring everyone together and have this conversation. So Nike's world headquarters is located in Beaverton. They're our largest employer. So I brought them to the table with hospitals and everyone else and said, how do we do this? Within two weeks, we had the largest public partner private vaccine clinic operating in the state to which the governor came and said, can you do more of this? Nike had a parking garage that's really high tech that it sucks out emissions and there's like air filtration. So we could have like three or 400 cars running in the parking structure and not worry about carbon buildup for people inside. And so in Portland in the spring, it's rainy and gross. So we had our firefighters inside a space and it took all the cars off the roadway, which from a mayor, I think about those things. How are cars going to impact and back up to the freeway and traffic flow? So we solved all of those. But the county came in and held the contract for vaccines. Our special buyer district brought all the employees in. Private business offered up space. And our CERT team, a community of volunteers, were on the ground moving cars around. Four jurisdictions were involved in that process to make it happen. And there's no way a community member drove their car in and thought, here's all these levels of government doing things together in unison and having a really positive outcome. And that's only 
possible if we kind of work together on solutions. Yeah, I love that. I love that example. And I know another area that you've been really active in is climate. And obviously, I'm sitting in the West too. We're on the, you know, you being in the Northwest, we've got firefighters. You guys had record heat last summer that, of course, you're probably thinking, starting to prepare for. As you said, this stuff is planning. You can't think about the air conditioner problem you had in Beaverton last year, right? You know, it got to get ready for next year. So tell me a little bit about, again, in the context of your priorities and your plan, where climate fits in. Climate is one of the highest priorities. We're experiencing massive shifts in our climate in the Northwest. When I first moved to Portland in 2012, that you didn't even need an air conditioner. I was wearing a sweatshirt on 4th of July. I remember that because of coming from Arizona, how abnormal that was to wear a sweatshirt on 4th of July. And we weren't really, we maybe got snow once every other year. We weren't experiencing the snow. And we had a massive ice storm that hit the region January of last year that shut down power for days at a time. And it happened about 10 miles east of Beaverton, where I'm at. And PGE, our power supplier, said if it had hit Beaverton with how old the infrastructure was, we would have been out of power for much longer because it was way older. And so when we think about climate change and how it impacts our life, people don't even know, like, we potentially could have lost our massive power because we did not do undergrounding, that this extreme weather is impacting things other than what we traditionally think about climate change. So I created my first month, the very first climate action task force. I seated 50% of the membership is under 30, majority communities of color, to help us create a plan that we can follow do for greenhouse admissions. And I also worked really hard with our legislature this year that it didn't pass. But basically, the state sets the base level code for new construction. Buildings are the second leasing cause of emissions behind vehicles. And if we can't control our own destiny at the city on how we build to meet our own climate goals, then how are we ever going to have meaningful reduction in emissions? And so we went to the state legislature. I was out on point on that issue this year. It didn't make it over the line. They created a task force. I'm hoping for another shot at it in 2023. But it takes so much work to create things. I mean, yeah, cities can do things like plant more trees and have minimal approaches or say reduce, reuse and recycle and do these things. But if we can't control massive ways on how we reduce admissions, we're never going to reach our goal. That's what's complicated and hard to tell the community. This is what I'm working on and why it matters when they want to see tangible things. They want to see more trees. They want to see more recycling centers. But when I'm looking at the biggest bang for my buck, those are the kind of things that we have to do. Yeah, I love that mayors like you, others at this on the ground, right, who understand the way that, you know, climate change is not coming, as you said, it is here, the, your examples, the ice storm and the extreme heat. So, and I think that, you know, you're such an important messenger as a local elected official because you know how your constituents are experiencing this change, right? And so to talk about it in grandiose terms about, you know, carbon emissions and, you know, even rising sea levels in the Arctic, I think people feel that that's distant, right? So to be able to talk about it, where you live, how it's affecting them is so important. So thank you so much for, for your leadership on that. I just want to make one more point on this because it is really important to me as we're talking about Build Back Better potentially coming back in the infrastructure package to be able to leverage those funds, like to do microgridding in my community, because we're not going to be able to get our system cannot withstand. If we wanted everyone to have an electric car, our system would not be able to do it. And so as we're doing these and doing green tariffs and doing all this amazing work, we have to build the infrastructure to accomplish it. In my community, over 50% rent. And most of them, it's the most rented city in kind of the metro region where we are. Most of them are multifamily housing where they have no access to electric car charging stations. So right off the bat, half my community is left out 
of being able to do individual things to impact climate. So that's why it's really important when we're here in D.C. and we're helping work together that like we need all levels of government working together to accomplish these goals. No mayor is going to do it alone. The White House can't do it alone. So really learning to be better messengers of that and telling our community this is what we're doing and kind of moving things along because I think that is lost. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You kind of mentioned at the beginning about your lacrosse scholarship. And I read something when I was prepping for this that I just love. So I did not realize that you had done so much coaching of lacrosse. And I read that you once said that, you know, coach was one of the favorite things you've ever been called. And I thought that that probably said a lot about your leadership style. And what can you tell us about that, about how you think about yourself in now in this role as a coach? Yeah, I mean, so I coached kindergarten to college. I did a little bit of everything. I love kindergartners and I love college age kids. Everyone in between is a little bit harder. And I coached travel teams and startups. I created a nonprofit to go into low-income schools because it is a pretty affluential sport, making sure kids had access to it. And really, I was just on vacation in Central Oregon with my husband and walked right into one of the first players I ever coached. And she's out of college now. She's a city engineer doing dorky engineer things. So we got to have a conversation about roundabouts. And it was just so different than her as a 12-year-old that I used to coach. But she was telling me of like, you know, used to make us do these hard things. And I was in college in an ice storm in Colorado. And when it hit, I had you in my brain saying, you got to do hard things to win. It's all about how do we, you know, get through this suffering point? How do we move people from point A to point B? And what I learned as a coach was like, you got to coach people and their individual needs differently. And that's how I take my job as the team captain as mayor. Like maybe one city councilor doesn't need to talk to me once a day. Maybe somebody else does. But kind of recognizing that if we want peak performance out of elected officials, we have to move that way. And it's consistency over intensity. What we see with elected officials is that they have a pop in the pan, they got a lot of media, but it's really that consistency every single day of moving the goals forward. And that's how I operate. I get up at, you know, most people know this about me and all your viewers are now too. I get up at 4 a.m. every day. I work out, I read emails, I do all my stuff and I get ready. It's that everyday consistency versus just this one time burning of trying to get something accomplished. And I think that's the kind of coach that I was. It's the, and the kind of leader I am now is like, how do we do things every day that have meaningful impact or change? But no one sees that. No one sees that sweat equity and that hard work. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to what you were talking about planning, right? The planning, it's like, you know, people, they see you cut that ribbon. They don't realize it was 10 years in the making or whatever it was. And I think that that kind of patience and perspective and not thinking that you have to, to your point, kind of, you know, have this big victory every day, right? You know, because it's not feasible. It's not sustainable. So what you're doing is so important to lay that groundwork. So I love that. And I will start calling you coach from now on. I want to end with a question. We've been asking people on this show recently. I love this new question to tell us a little bit about their city. If, if I had 24 hours in Beaverton, you mentioned people's awareness. Beaverton, as you mentioned, is right outside Portland. So if I was going to come to your city to have 24 hours there, give me a couple tips and gems that I should not miss. Well, we would definitely have a perform, like go see something at the RESER, the Patricia Research Center for the Arts that we just cut the ribbon on. It is an amazing facility full of really awesome architecture, open to the public all the time. So we definitely would do that. We have a restaurant row. We only have a 2% commercial vacancy rate in Beaverton right now. We are very efficient of getting people to come do business, open restaurants. We opened a ton of restaurants during COVID that are thriving compared to cities around us that couldn't make it work because of investments we've done. So we definitely would go have a beer. We closed down an entire street 
for outdoor dining, which is, you know, a lot of cities are not focused, pedestrian focused, and really that experience, we made that permanent because of what we experienced during COVID and how much people liked it. So we'd sit outside and it's probably raining in the Pacific Northwest, so it's covered, we'll be fine. And well, you know, my favorite piece is we have a veteran park. We have the oldest Vietnam Memorial west of the Mississippi that I helped relocate to our veteran park. I just him here in DC and found his name on the veteran wall so I can go back and talk about it. So we'd go spend a couple minutes talking about sacrifice in our veteran park. I love that. Well, it sounds beautiful and I can't wait to come visit you there. Again, I just want to thank you so much for taking time today to be with us and for all the work you're doing to help lead your city through this recovery. It's uh, great to see you, Lacey. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.